The cities of God assigned as places of refuge were aimed at man's justice, and God puts this in play immediately as they conquer and go into the promised land. This is absolutely fascinating. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Embry. I'm Janice. And today we study from Deuteronomy chapter 19. This is absolutely stunning. I'm going to study it in three minutes. So stay there. It is a good one. All right, Corey, you're up. I'm taking a look at Deuteronomy 23 and cleanliness and sanitation. Ryan? Well, today I have a question for us, and it's this. Did the prohibition set out in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 2, disqualify David from being a legitimate king? We'll find out. Yeah, that, that's a really good question. That's excellent. Okay, Janice. Today's segment is God is our refuge. All right, take your Bible guide, turn to today's passage, because it's a good passage. We're going to study this and listen to the Lord as we look at the Bible. Deuteronomy 19, 1 through 10. When the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses. You shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall prepare roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, that any manslayer may flee there. And this is the case of the manslayer who flees there, that he may live. Whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hated him in time past, as when a man goes to the woods with his neighbor to cut timber, and his hand swings a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he shall flee to one of these cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and kill him, though he was not deserving of death since he had not hated the victim in time past. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall separate three cities for yourself. Now, if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he swore to your fathers and gives you the land which he promised to give to your fathers, and if you keep all these commandments and do them, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to walk always in his ways, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three lest innocent blood be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and thus guilt of bloodshed be upon you. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Moses writes from Deuteronomy 19 to 23. Of course, he is, he is filled with the Holy Spirit and God speaks through Moses and to us uh, as we begin to look at some very important things. Now, God made provision for human sin in the very infrastructure of Israel. It's true. We see this in our reading today with the strategic placement 
and commissioning of cities of refuge. Now, if someone killed accidentally without premeditation, the murderer had somewhere, the murderer had somewhere safe to go and await for judgment from the elders. If it was concluded that the death was accidental, then he could live in the city of refuge for the rest of his life or until the death of the high priest, at which time the perpetrator would be free to go back into Israelite society. Now, when considering these cities of refuge, it strikes me how compassionate God is. He wanted each Israelite to follow him, to be holy, and not to be controlled by sin. Not to be controlled by sin. Yet he knew they would sin, and they would fall short of his holiness again and again. So God created avenues of his mercy and grace right into the infrastructure of the nation itself. God knows that we are but dust, and he has always to help us, as he will, if we would but listen to him and follow his ways. <laughs> it's very interesting. We see this. It's so evident in the Bible, and there's just no way to avoid it. Now, today we're going to take our Bible guide and we're going to open up the chapter 19 of the book of Deuteronomy. And if you don't have one, I would encourage you to get a hold of yours by calling us or writing to us or go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com. And when you go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com, then what you can do is uh, click on it and it takes you to a place where you can donate. Thank you for your donations. And then you get it just like we printed it, a PDF version. So that's very, very important. Let's pray and ask God to show us this. Father, we pray today, we, we see this. The infrastructure of your mercy and your grace here in the Bible. Help us to take from the Bible and apply it to our hearts. Thank you, Father. And we pray that you would show us your way and teach us your path. In the name of Jesus Christ, and we said together, amen. Chapter 19, verse 1 says, When the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispose of them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall prepare roads for yourself and divide it into three parts, the territory of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, that any manslayer may flee there. Now, this is fascinating. The cities God assigned as places of refuge were given as aid in man's justice. You see, God knows who we are and how to help us. God knows who we are, and God knows how to help us. There's no question about it. And here he says to Israel, I want you to set up these cities of refuge, because I know this is going to happen, sins in the world, but I'm going to make a way where you can get the proper justice, not just your vision of justice, but the right justice. We're having a lot of issues with justice today, aren't we? Very interesting. Well, 
as we read on in the scripture, we hear some very interesting things. One of them is in verse four. And this is the case of the manslayer who flees there that he may live. Whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hated him in time past. As when a man goes to the woods with his neighbor to cut timber and his hand swings a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes the neighbor so that he dies. He gives you an example here. He shall flee to one of these cities and he shall live. Lest the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursues the manslayer and overtakes him because the way is long and kills him, though he was not deserving of death, since he had not hated the victim in time past. This is amazing. God knew that events would take place not motivated by emotion or intention. God's ways always keep us right before him. Beloved, listen carefully. As we identify with the Lord Jesus Christ in this day, at this time, after the cross and the death and the resurrection, if we identify with God and allow him to work with us, he changes our heart and begins to shift how we think and feel. We don't have to be, it doesn't have to be a law cast on us that we have to obey. But God changes us, and that's very different. We look at today, and we can see that there's a difference between having a law cast on you and having your heart changed. Interesting, isn't it? Well, we read on, and we see this in verse 7. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall separate three cities for yourself. Now if the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as he swore to your fathers, and gives you the land which he promised to give to your fathers. And if you keep all of these commandments and do them, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk always in his ways, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three, lest innocent blood be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And thus, Guilt of bloodshed shall be upon you. Do you see what God is doing here? God explains that innocent blood must not be spilled in his land. Christians or Christ-like followers stand for life and not death. Christians stand for life and not death. That is so important. We need to remember that, beloved. You see, there's many issues that face us, but the issues will come to a heart decision. Now, we abide by the laws, but the, it, the heart is really what makes the decision. And we need to make our decisions. And I've seen people who've been horribly violated. And they have said, even though the perpetrator did not ask for it, they have said, I forgive you because I have to, because the Lord tells me. And I've seen others say, I will never forgive you for the rest of my life. Look, I know that there's a lot of emotion, a lot of challenge, a lot of trauma involved. But God's Holy Spirit gives us the ability, not through our own spirit, but His Holy Spirit comes into our life and gives us that ability to do the right thing. And Father, I pray today for everybody who is struggling with this. I pray that you would help them to see and understand the truth about your mercy and your grace that you gave 
in the place of ancient Israel that they could see that you're working in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, if you have studied military history at all, for example, the Roman military and the camps of the Roman military, if, if you've if you've learned at all about this, I'm pretty sure that you will not have associated cleanliness and godly conduct with military camps. It doesn't really go hand in hand, except. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, even, uh, even sanitation and cleanliness is talked about when it came to ancient Israel's military camps because they were supposed to treat, treat their camps, their military camps, as if God was walking in the midst of their camp, according to Deuteronomy 23, verse 14, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy. They had to deal with their sanitation in a special way, but what about the rest of Israel? Take a look. A common human issue has always been what to do with everyday human waste. The simplest answer for those living nomadic lifestyles would likely have been a mixture of what humans without modern technology have always done, the digging of holes or the use of chamber pots to collect waste. Evidence shows that humans who lived stationary lives, whether in cities and houses or outside of cities and country villas, had more than just the humble hole or chamber pot. They could create cesspit toilets. These were very much like outhouses. A pit was dug, often lined with plaster to help contain the waste, and then a toilet seat was placed over the hole. Several stone toilet seats have been found in Israel, and famously, two were found still over their cesspits in Jerusalem. These ones were used for some time before the city's destruction by Babylon in 586 BC. As evidenced by samples from these cesspits, liming agents were routinely added to the pits to control bacterial production and aid in the decomposition of waste, though every so often, waste still would have needed to have been removed from the pits. Even from very ancient times, however, more luxurious arrangements are known to have existed. Toilets with running sewer systems. Running water toilets were seats built over top of water pipes that had continuously flowing water to wash away waste, eliminating the inconvenience and probably much of the smell of cesspit toilets. Toilets like these are known from Mesopotamia as far back as the 3rd millennium BC. It wasn't until the time of the Roman Empire that these toilets were made available to the public rather than just the elite. Sometime in the 2nd century BC, Roman public toilets began to be installed widely throughout the empire. They were built in public spaces to serve many at a time. Privacy was maintained more through the floor-length garments worn by men and women and less through proximity. 
These seats were made of stone or wood and were placed over a channel of flowing sewer water to wash away the excrement. A bit later in time, a trench or channel of ever-flowing water was built into the floors of these Roman latrines directly in front of the line of toilet seats. These are believed to have been for the Roman answer to toilet paper, sponges attached to short sticks. So there we go. Ancient people had to deal with issues just like us modern people do. And I think it's always an interesting and humanizing thing to take a look at some of these uh, issues that pop up. But it's important to remember that the, the ancient times, like the, the, the cleanliness in the camp where the military men were, that's important because if God is, if you're supposed to act like God is walking there all the time, that means he's walking in between the, all the people who are the military privates and the whole business. Yeah. That's serious. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of Deuteronomy's version of Jesus is always watching, you know? <laughs> like, be careful how yeah. you act. Be careful what you say. Be careful what you do. Uh, it, there's a huge emphasis on that in Deuteronomy. It's absolutely fascinating as we read the law of God and we understand that this is what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. they, it's literally a higher standard than anything. So very good. Thank you, Corey. All right, Ryan. Okay, well, today I'm focusing in on the prohibition given in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 2, which says that one of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. And the question is, since David was a descendant of Perez, who is the illegitimate child of Judah and Tamar, did this law disqualify David from serving in public office? Well, no, because as the genealogy in Ruth chapter 4 shows, David was the 10th generation from Perez. Take a look. Although King David was considered a standard by which all other Israelite kings were measured, there has been some question surrounding the legitimacy of his right to rule. This stems from Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 2 which clearly states that one of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. David, of course, was the descendant of Perez, who was the illegitimate child of Judah and Tamar. So this family line, according to the Mosaic law, was disqualified from entering the assembly of the Lord until the tenth generation. While the assembly of the Lord often refers to the Jewish people as a whole, in the context of Deuteronomy 23, it appears to be referring to any leadership role in either the government or in corporate worship. Hence, Judah's line up until the 10th generation would be disqualified from entering into any leadership roles involving either church or state. Because some count David as only a 9th generation descendant of Perez, they maintain that biblically he should have been disqualified from the kingship. And critics who deny that the scriptures are divinely inspired claim that this is an error, since the Bible seemingly overlooks and contradicts itself regarding this particular law. However, the Bible does nothing of the sort. Far from overlooking this law, the Bible actually seems to acknowledge and celebrate David as the very fulfillment of it. This is seen in the Old Testament book of Ruth. Ruth, who was a foreigner, married a Jewish man named Boaz, and at their wedding celebration a toast was proclaimed. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. To those familiar with the unfortunate and disgraceful episode of Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38, this remark seems more like a curse than a blessing. So what's going on here? 
Could it be that this declaration in Ruth chapter 4 verse 12 was both acknowledging that the law in Deuteronomy 23 was still in effect, but also looking forward to that tenth generation when the seed of Judah could finally serve in public office? Significantly, that tenth generation from Perez was none other than David. And to emphasize this, the book closes with David's genealogy. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Amminadab. Amminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. As the Bible shows, David is counted as the tenth generation, not the ninth as critics suppose. The discrepancy comes because critics do not count Perez as a generation, whereas the Bible does. Thus, it was perfectly legal for David to occupy the throne. The scepter had finally and rightfully come to Judah, just as Jacob proclaimed in Genesis chapter 49. So as we see, David was the 10th generation from Perez, which means he was the first legitimate generation that could serve in public office. Deuteronomy 23.2 had been satisfied, and now the scepter, that is, the rule of Judah, had been established. And we see this reflected in the genealogies in Ruth chapter 4 and also Luke 3. You know, when you, when you study the genealogies uh, and you begin to understand, you, you know, you go through the Bible over and over again, you begin to see, and you're reading, like, for example, you get into 1 Chronicles or you get into 2 Kings or whatever, and you're looking at all this and you go, wait a minute. I know who that is. That's that guy. And that's that guy. Yeah. And you begin to put all the pieces together. The genealogies are very important. Very important. And then we see this in Ruth chapter four. I, you know, before I had kind of wondered about this genealogy until I finally connected the dots and I saw it for the first time. And I realized that's why that's one of the main reasons it's there is to show David's legitimacy to the throne. Yep. And absolutely. that's pretty incredible. Absolutely. And you look at Luke, you look at Matthew, and you see all of the, the material there, and, you, and you're like, I see, I understand. Mm -hmm. There is a history here yeah, that absolutely. we need to pay attention to. Very good, Ryan. Ryan Hembry on YouTube. Make sure you go there. He's got a lot of things on that particular site, interviews with everything, with the scientists and all that. It's really great. Ryan Hembry <laughs> at YouTube. Okay, Janice. And a lot of times we've heard it said to hear many times before, you're going to go through sections of the Bible that seem repetitious, that seem like there's so many little details. What could it matter? How many gold bowls were in Solomon's pantry? But every word matters. There is such a dimension in the Bible that we really need to come to it as the authority of God's word and let it speak to our spirits. Even if we can't physically understand it in our minds, it's okay. It's okay. Let's just read it. God is our refuge is what I titled my segment today. We're looking at the cities of refuge. This chapter 19 is really a, quite an, an interesting read in seeing that the cities that God set aside for people who had killed someone, whether it was an in intentional or whether it was unintentional. I love the um, example given here with the, the man and his neighbor going into the woods and they're cutting uh, wood down and the axe head flies off the handle and hits his neighbor and kills him. He doesn't mean to. It was, it was accidental. But in this time, the, a manslayer, somebody that was hired by the family or who was in that man's family had every right 
by the law of God to come after that man, uh, blood for blood. And so these cities were a city of refuge where somebody could go and be safe until they could, the, the whole thing could be investigated to see exactly what happened. And it just reminded me that God is our refuge. It reminded me of Psalm 46 verse one. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And God is still the same today. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay this, the, 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 the penalty for us, for sin, because the penalty of sin is death. And yet Jesus, who never committed sin, who was absolutely perfect, gave his life and his shed blood bought our salvation. And so Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We can find forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here's what Jesus offers. John 6, verse 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's interesting that the man or the woman who didn't intentionally kill someone had the same right as the one who did murder. When they would get to that city of refuge, they would be tried. You know, a lot of people think, I've done too many things. God could never forgive me. Or perhaps you have the attitude of, well, you know, I can do whatever. I can live however I want, and God will, will love me anyway. He's got to love me. Both of those are not true. When we come to God, truly come to God, understanding what he has done for us, and when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that he rose from the dead, he gives us eternal life. We are saved. But we must turn away. It doesn't matter what you've done. Come to Jesus today if you truly are repentant and you want him to live. You want him to take that penalty of death from you. Come to him. If you're compromising and saying, God's got to love me, don't live like that. Come to Jesus. Follow him and obey him. Know his word. Don't just read it and know it, but apply it to your life and live it. Come to him on a daily basis. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He's our savior.
I do want to say thank you for watching today. And I want to thank you for being a supporter of this ministry. Very, very important. Your support keeps us alive every day and we praise God for it. And I want to thank you and pray for you. Father, I pray at this time, right now in the midst of everything, that you would help people to be able to make all of their money work for them and help them, Lord. In Jesus' name, we thank you, Father, and we praise your name. And we said together, amen.